overrated, and then I um, I realized that actually at, at one point in my life I, I have bought a promise ring, and so <laughs> if you go back to high school, and I don't recommend it, but if you do go back to high school, uh, add up all the dates that I went on, multiply them together, and it equals zero. Um, I went on zero dates in all of high school. I don't think that's funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then I get into college, and in college I've got my first girlfriend, who was in high school, but I had my first girlfriend. <laughs> and then she broke up with me. <laughs> Look, I have emotions, alright? I have feelings. And I thought, I've got the solution. I'm going to buy her a promise ring. And so I... So I went, and I bought her a promise ring, and I mean, this thing was 30 bucks, made of plastic, it had glass for the diamond, it was, it was awful. Uh, and then when I gave it to her, I actually didn't promise anything, right? I just said, I have a promise ring for you, and she said, oh, I love you, and came running back, all right? <laughs> and here's my question. I'm sorry, this is not how it was intended to start. Um, here's my question. Why? Why? Why, why this girl um, who wanted nothing to do with me, when I buy a ring and I say, I promise. I don't promise a thing, I just promise. Why would it just change everything on a dime? I figure there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, one, she might be that one girl out there who really likes plastic rings. I'm, I'm sure she exists. Or it could be, or it could be uh, a reflection of something deeper. It, it could be a reflection of something deeper, that there is this intrinsic hardwiring inside of humanity that longs for promise, that's drawn to promise, that's attracted to promise. It could be an example of something deeper. Let me give you another example. Uh, I've been married for 10 years. Different girl. Married 10 years. We have three kids. My wife and I, we talk all the time. And here's what we've never done. We, we don't sit on the couch and say, uh, hey babe, X, Y, Z, you promised, you promised, you promised, you promised. But my kids, the moment they're able to interact, you know what they said? Hey, hey daddy, daddy, do you promise? Do you promise? Do you promise? Or... Uh, one day, my daughter fell in love with Orcas. I don't know how it happened. I just walked in one day. Daddy, I love Orcas. I'm like, you mean killer whales? Like, <laughs> you know, they eat everything. Like, you get that? You, and, and she said, but, but Orcas, listen, they're dolphins. I promise, Daddy. I promise, they're dolphins. Now, I don't know if an Orca is a dolphin. I don't care if an Orca is a dolphin. But here's what I do know. I know that my daughter tried to prove to me she knew what she was talking about by saying the words, I promise, I promise. I promise. There is an instinctive, innate attraction to and need to create promise. And so whether it is uh, my college girlfriend who is not drawn to me but is drawn to a promise or my kids who instinctively just say, I promise. Today we ask the question why. We, we ask the question where this came from. And our text is going to take us to the heart of the answer. It's going to give us a diagnosis. Because listen, it is, it is no overstatement to say this. The Bible hinges on a promise. 
It is no overstatement to say the Bible hinges on a promise. And it's the promise that's at the heart of our text today. And so we're going to look at it under three headings. The nature of the promise, the guarantee of the promise, and the mystery of the promise. Point one, the nature of the promise. Let's look at verse 13. You guys read it with me. Four. Okay. Stop right there. Four is an explanatory word. It's explaining something. Paul here, that Paul is the author uh, of Romans. If you don't know the story of Paul, you need to know the story of Paul, especially if this is your first time here. If, you, if you're in here and you feel a little bit uncomfortable of being in here, uh, you think, I don't know if this is really a room for me. Like, these guys don't know me. I know me. I know who I really am. If these guys knew me, I wouldn't really belong in here. And Paul, if I could tell you real quick, was a man uh, who murdered Christians, who then God made a Christian, who became a Christian. Uh, this is an, an open, free room for anybody to come uh, to the table of Jesus, all right? Uh, but four, Paul is explaining something back to the sermon that had nothing to do with the sermon. Um, back to the sermon. He, he's explaining that in Romans, but Paul is, uh, has opened up the letter by saying, listen, if I could just paraphrase, no one's righteous. No, no one's righteous. Not one person out there is righteous. But, Paul, but Abraham has become righteous. And, and he's answering how he became righteous. And he's going to say that it's by faith not by works, not by morality. And now he's going to explain why or how this is. All right? So verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So, so here, here is Paul's Explanation that the basis of Abraham's righteousness is a promise, not the law. The basis of Abraham's righteousness is a promise and not the law. And to understand this, we, we, need to, we need to kind of talk Genesis. We need to be able to set this promise that God made to Abraham in its, in its context. And so let me, let me tell you some things about Genesis real quick. Genesis is part of a larger story. So the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, are, are one story divided into two parts. Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through Deuteronomy 34. Genesis 1 through 11 is God's, is the need for a covenant people. Genesis 12 begins God's creation or calling of a covenant and so Genesis 1 through 11, God creates and it goes bad and it goes bad fast. And then in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham to go and establish a people through whom he would restore and redeem creation. And in Genesis 15, uh, we have Abraham coming to God and saying, listen, God, I hear you, but, but I don't have an offspring. Right? Like, I, how am I going to establish a people if I don't have an offspring? And God comes to him and says, but you will. You will. In fact, look at the stars. Look up at that nighttime sky. You see them? Can you count them? No, you can't count them. As many as the stars are, that'll be the number of your offspring. And this is the promise. This is the promise of Romans 4, and it goes even beyond that. Then in Genesis 15, it says, but not only that, you'll have this land to possess. And then in Romans 4, it's translated into your offspring will, will be the heir of the world. So you'll have an offspring, you'll have a land. This is the promise that's at the heart of our text. But in our text, we have to ask a question, and it's a legitimate question. We have to ask Paul a question. 
Why the law? I think about it. We're, we're in Romans 4. Paul is saying, hey, hey listen, uh, this righteousness that Abraham has, it, it, it came because of faith and a promise, not the law. But, but why does he even include the law? Because in Genesis 15, there is no law. The law doesn't exist in Genesis 15. So why would Paul, in his argument, in Romans, why would he include the law? And I think we have to keep reading because it's going to take us to why the law exists. And, and in doing so, it's going to answer the question of what Paul is doing here in Romans 4. So look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now Paul's not saying, he's not saying that before the law there's not sin. He's saying um, that the law is Yatsi. But the law, I don't know if you play Yatsi or not, I've never actually played, so. Look back at notes, find out where we're at. Um, that, that the law establishes a boundary that you transgress. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying that the law reveals sin, not that the law heals sin, not that the law has the power to make him righteous, but that the law would reveal his unrighteousness. It would reveal his transgression. The best analogy on the role of the law that I ever heard was from a friend of mine who had, um, who had a brain tumor. And, uh, and he said, that uh, I had an MRI done, and, and on the MRI screen, I could see my tumor. And he said, the law is like the MRI machine. Right? The law, like the MRI machine, the MRI machine has no power to heal the tumor, simply to reveal what is there. The law has no power to heal our sin. It simply reveals what is there. This is Paul's understanding of the law, and and this is, this is why he included it. Here's why he included the law. Because Paul was countering, he was countering the Jewish, Jewish, the Jewish religious belief of the day. He was countering the Jewish understanding of righteousness, that the, the Jewish understanding of righteousness is that it came through obedience. So the way that they would say it is that Abraham became righteous through the yoke of the law. They believed he became acceptable to God through obedience to the law, and that we must, they believed, take on the yoke of the law in order to be righteous. And Paul is countering this, but the reality is we're no different than the Jews. You and I, we, we are no different than the Jews. And I tell me our default position isn't this. It isn't I'm saved by grace, kept by the law. Tell me the default of your heart isn't, I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by the law. I'm kept by morality. I'm kept by my obedience. And Paul is pleading with us. Paul is pleading with you in Romans. He's pleading with you as he pled with the Romans. Don't rest in the law as if Jesus isn't enough. He's pleading with you. Don't rest in the law. Don't rest in your morality as if Jesus isn't enough. He is saying to us, remember. Remember why you are here. That you are here because of a promise God made to Abraham, not a promise you made to God. Hmm. Say that again. You are here because of a promise God made to Abraham, not a promise you made to God. He is saying, remember and rest in Christ, not in the law.
And most of us in here struggle with this because we, we believe the gospel is enough to save us. We believe that the gospel is enough to redeem us from who we were. It's just not powerful enough to change us. It's just not powerful enough to, to transform us. And so functionally, we live a gospel plus life. Functionally, we live a Christ plus life. And when this happens, we, we think that we need more than the gospel. Right? The gospel's not enough, so I need morality to fill the gap. The gospel's not enough, so I need my marriage to fill the gap. The gospel's not enough, and so I need to get married to fill the gap. The gospel's not enough, and so I need my dream job to fill the gap. And when our life is a life full of filling the gap, when the gap doesn't get filled, you will wind up angry at yourself or angry at God. Either way, you wind up bitter. Either way, you wind up bitter. You, you wind up at a wedding. A wedding not even able to be happy for your friends because all you can think is, why not me? You wind up you wind up in the middle of suffering, which is coming for all of us. Angry at yourself, thinking you're being punished for something you did. Or angry at God, thinking, I, I did all you asked, and this is what I get. Either way, you wind up bitter. And this is a life trying to fill the gap, living in insecurity in the law and not security in Jesus. And verse 16 says there's an alternative. It says there's a better way. There's a better life. A guaranteed promise. Verse 16. That is why it, it Abraham's righteousness, that is why it depends on faith. In order, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. But Abraham's righteousness, it's saying, it's not from obedience to the law, but faith in a promise. But then he goes on and he says something else. He says, in order that, in order that it may rest on grace and be guaranteed. That when, when Paul says this, that it may rest on grace, and be guaranteed, Paul steps directly into a theological debate. A theological debate of, is this promise, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Right, is it conditional? Are there conditions? Is it do X, Y, and Z and receive the promise? Or is it unconditional? Doesn't matter what you do, promise is there. Is it conditional or unconditional? Here's why this is a legitimate debate. One reason it's a legitimate debate is that, is that throughout the Bible, if you read the Bible, it seems to at times give contradictory answers. It seems like it gives contradictory answers. But another reason is that if the law is given after the promise, right, which the promise was given, the law, not hundreds of years later. If the law was given after the promise, how do we know that the promise is rooted in grace? How do we know that it's guaranteed? How do we know that you don't receive the promise by obedience to the law if God gave a promise then said I need to give the law? How do we know? And the answer, the answer to is it conditional or unconditional? The answer to this theological debate that Paul dove headfirst into is found at the heart of the promise. Look at, look at Genesis 15 with me. The words will be 
on the screen. Genesis 15, 8. Now, in the story leading up, we've already talked about it. So Abraham, uh, I don't have an offspring. I don't, I don't have a son. I, and God's saying you will. And not only that, you'll have as many offspring as the stars. And you'll have a land to possess. Now verse 8. This is Abraham with a legitimate question. But he said, O Lord God. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Legitimate question. You're saying that I'm going to possess this land. How how will I know, God? You said my offspring are going to have this land. How will I know? Verse 9. He, this is the Lord. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid laid each half over against the other. Now, now this might seem random, but it wasn't random at all to Abraham. Abraham knew exactly what was going on. This was a, a covenant ceremony. And a covenant ceremony in these days went like this. If the king was entering into a, a covenant with a peasant, common folk, people like you and me, if the king was entering into a covenant, he would, he would have the peasant go and get some animals, and he'd have him bring the animals. And then he would cut the animals in half. So this is not going to work in the heights. But he would cut the animals in half. I love the heights. I really do. Lay the animals in two rows. Cut them in half. Lay them in two rows. And then the king would give stipulations to the covenant. Do X, Y, Z and live. And then the peasant would walk between the row. Walk past between the two rows of animals. And as he did, he was symbolically saying that if I don't fulfill the stipulations, may I receive the judgment of the covenant. If I don't fulfill the stipulations you're giving me, may I wind up like the animals. And so Abraham knows this. He knows what's happening. So he cuts the animals in half. He makes two rows. And now he's just waiting. Look at verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Number 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. See, in this scene, the, the darkness that came down represents divine judgment. The fire represents divine presence. See, this covenant ceremony was like every other covenant ceremony there was, while being unlike any other covenant ceremony known to man. But there were two surprises to Abraham, and both of these surprises to Abraham would have been soul staggering. Surprise number one. In this day, kings never passed through the animal. Kings never passed through the animal. For obvious reasons, kings never took the judgment of the covenant. Surprise number one to Abraham was that the fire came down and the fire passed through. And as if that wasn't enough, 
surprise number two was not only did God come down and pass between the animal, Abraham was never asked to. God was saying, God was saying, not only Abraham, why? Well, I be torn into pieces if I don't keep my promise. I'll be torn into pieces if you don't. And God was promising to take the curse, both of them. And centuries later, Abraham knew exactly what this meant. And as the darkness of judgment would come down on Calvary, in the midst of the darkness, would be God in the person of Jesus literally being torn in pieces. So is the, is the promise conditional or unconditional? Yes. Yes, it is. And Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the promise so that you could experience, so that I could experience the unconditional love of Jesus in the cross, when he was being torn into pieces, when the judgments of the curse came down, he was fulfilling the conditions of the covenant so that you and I could experience the unconditional love of God. So we might want to believe in a God of all roads lead to one place, but don't you see how fickle that is compared to this God? Don't you see how fickle that God is compared to a God who would say, I'll come down. I'll, I'll take on the curse of the covenant that I'm making for you. Don't you see how this gives us a God of both substance and compassion? of both holiness and grace. And this leads us to the, the mystery of the promise. This creates the divine and beautiful mystery of the promise. So back to Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 16. It says, that is why it... That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That not only to the adherent of the law, that's the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that's Jew and Gentile. And here is Paul's application of the promise. Here's Paul's application of Christ fulfilling the promise. That his application is this, that that it takes a divided people, Jew, Gentile, people who should not have wanted anything to do with one another, and it reconciles them. It reconciles them. And it says, it says to you in this room right now, listen, you, you might be sitting here right now feeling like my life is falling apart. You might be sitting here going, listen, I, I do not belong here. Forget your stuff about Paul, Brandon. I don't care about him. I don't belong in this room. 
And Paul's application of the promise is this. No matter how much of a train wreck your life might be, not just feel like, it might actually be a train wreck right now. And he's saying, I still came to reconcile you to myself. You whose life looks like it should have nothing to do with me. Me whose life looks like it should have nothing to do with you. And I sent my son to reconcile the two. It says that there is no man, woman, or child so far gone that the grace of God can't run you down. That's what this says. So I want to apply, I want to apply this, this reconciliation that Ephesians 3 calls the mystery of Christ. And this Jew-Gentile, this reconciliation of people who should not be reconciled together, this mystery. I want to apply it a couple of ways. First, first way is that it creates a people of the promise. It creates a people of the promise who exist to put the promise on display. Creates a people of the promise who exist to put the promise on display. And the order of that sentence matters. The order of that sentence matters. That it's who before why. That who we are leads to why we're here. Who we are leads to why we're here. And for us as a people, for us as a church, for us as a community of men and women, this is what it means. It means that mission flows out of relationship. That mission flows out of relationship. It's why we don't say Sojourn Heights, our church mission. We say our church family. It's why we say our church family because mission flows out of relationship. And if we get that backwards, if we try to make relationship flow out of mission, here's what's going to happen. At the heart of our community, at the heart of our relationships, will be a project, not a promise. It'll be an objective, not a gospel. Mission flows out of relationship. And if we keep that right, if we see that it's who we are before why we're here, the people we've been called to reach, the people we've been called to live on mission for will feel like people and not projects. You know what a win for sojourn? A win for sojourn is everyone who walks through that door feeling like a person. And I want to, I want to tell you guys this, if I could just say this as an encouragement to us. I, I, think, I think as a church family, we do this off the radar. My mother-in-law, who's not in here, or I wouldn't be using this illustration, uh, my, my mother-in-law came to Christmas Eve. Uh, she uh, has had, had no interest in any church gathering event that we've ever taken her to. She's never had a word to say, not positive or negative. Came to Christmas Eve. We went to dinner afterwards. You know what she said? She said, I really liked this. It was different. I felt like a person. I say this as an encouragement to us that I think by the Lord's grace we have and by His grace we continue to do this off the radar. We're a people of the promise. And so when we talk about things like consider moving in, consider moving in to the city and staying in the city, consider the heights as an urban missionary, here's why we say proximity matters for relationship, relationship matters for mission. Proximity matters for relationship, relationship matters for mission. And what this does, what this does, seeing 
who we are, but Lord, why we're here. Because it cuts the legs out from under consumerism in the church. It cuts the legs out from which church can give me the most. I like the music here, the preaching here, the ministry here. And it says, I'm a people first. Everything else flows out of that. It cuts the legs out of consumerism in the church. Let me give you another reason. The order matters. The order matters because if project comes before promise, right? If why we're here comes before who we are, there will always be conditions on our relationships. Our community will always come with conditions because we'll always be, we'll always be, we'll always be imposing the law on one another. If project comes before promise, we'll have expectations that people have to live up to in order to be one of us. But if who we are, if who we are comes before why we're here, we can suffer together, we can laugh together, we can even fight together. And we can do so without fear of abandoning one another. Who we are before why we're here. We're people of promise, living to display the promise. So because the conditions have been met by Christ, because the conditions of the promise, the conditions of the law have been met by Christ, applied to me, we can then extend the same grace to one another. We can laugh together, we can suffer together, we can fight together, and we don't have to fear abandoning one another. Let me tell you a last reason. We can close with one last reason. It matters. It matters because we don't want confusion over why Christ died. We don't want any confusion over why Christ died. We don't want anyone thinking that Christ died to create a new law. He didn't. He died to create a new humanity. He, he died to create not a people of a new law, but he died to create a people of a promise who have been called to put the promise on display. Who have been called to take this promise to delight in it, to relish in it, to love it, and then to put it on display. He died to create a people of the promise, knowing, knowing that in the cross he was meeting the conditions of the covenant so you and I, so you and I could walk in and experience the unconditional love of God. That is why we're here. That is why who we are or why we're here matters, that we're a people of the promise. And we're praying, praying by the Lord's grace we might just rest in that. That we might, that you might, that I might, we might rest in that, rest in the promise, not in our morality. That we might rest in the cross, not in the law. That we might look at what Christ did and know that we have it by grace through faith. And it's guaranteed. And it's guaranteed because you're in this room, not because of a promise you've made to God, but a promise God made to Abraham that we share in faith with Christ. The one who stood there, who hung there, who sat under the cloud of judgment. 
was torn into pieces. Filling conditions that we have never fulfilled. So that we might have a life that we would never deserve. Pray for us.